I encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to go to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have one with you, you can find them in the rack around you, and you can follow along that way or up on the screen. If you're new to New Help, welcome. Glad that you're here. And welcome to our online audience as well. Glad that you're streaming with us today. I'm going to get into Romans 8 with you in just a minute. I want to pray with you first. I'm very excited about what we're going to look at today and and also what we're going to look at next week. Next week, we go into verse 26 where Paul begins talking about how it's a good thing we have the Holy Spirit because we don't know how to pray as we're supposed to pray. Anybody here feel like you don't know how to pray like you're supposed to? Go ahead and out yourself like that. Yeah, that's a common thing, right? A lot of us would say, I'm just not as good at it as I want to be. Or I'm not as diligent as I want to be. That's why you find the disciples coming to Jesus saying, hey, would you teach us how to pray better? We we want to do this better. And so you find Paul saying something next week in which he says, uh, um, we don't pray as we should. We're just not that good at it and we need to get better. But that's next week. So I'm going to take you into Romans 8 verses 24 and 25 this morning. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for those who are in this auditorium right now, for those who are watching online, and the opportunity that each of us have to um, look at your word. We've lifted up praise to you in song. We've declared truth about who you are. We've witnessed to each other through communion, and we've remembered what you've done for us. So now we ask that you would respond back to us with favor, Father, by giving us the teaching capacity of the Holy Spirit to understand better what you want to say to us. So we come before you in humility, saying we want to know you better, and we want to understand better who we are to you, and your claim on us, and what that means for our life, right right now, this morning, in this very hour. Father, I pray that you would do that, and the power of the one who redeemed us, the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You ever wish that you could kind of hit the reset button on your life, maybe do a week over again, maybe a month. Maybe some of you would say, I'd love to do my whole life over again. You just feel like you'd like a fresh new start. I think that's why, as humans, we love January, because we feel like we get a brand new beginning. We'd love to have some time to do things over, and January kind of feels like it's a blank slate, got a whole new year in front of me, I can do things new again. Maybe, like me, you've received a lot of email offers this week. Um, This week, I've received offers on fresh new beginnings on multiple things. I'm told I can have a fresh new beginning and that all my hopes and dreams will be met if I buy a new iPhone 10. All my problems will go away. Everything will be solved. And and my son who bought an iPhone 10 says, it's true, Dad. It really does take care of all your problems. So I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about that. But I've been offered a fresh new beginning with a new diet plan. I've been offered a fresh new beginning with a new financial plan. I've been offered a fresh new beginning with new workout habits. All kinds of new beginnings are available to me. Well, the reality is it's the job of advertisers to do that. They make a fortune on human desire. And human desire is that we hope for new beginnings. It's their job to convince you that the product that they sell is going to do exactly what you need and they're going to meet all the hopes that you're looking for. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you understand hope is not in a new gadget and your hope is not in a new year, but in the one who makes all things new. That's where your hope is. So Paul, if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, comes with a brilliant argument. And I would encourage you, if you haven't spent time in Romans, to spend some time in it. 
He, he comes forward and he says, this is reality. Let's just acknowledge the fact that things are broken. We need new beginnings. Nature is out of whack. The natural order of things is out of whack. Human behavior is out of whack. We need a fresh new beginning. So in the book of Romans, he analyzes difficulties. Real serious dilemmas are addressed. Things that haunt us. And he looks at the state of the world. He analyzes the human condition. And he says, these are deep problems. And they strain the mind. Here's God's position on it. That's what Romans essentially does. Let me give you three examples of things that we looked at in the month of November before we stopped our study in Romans for Christmas. Look with me on the screen at this first one. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, he's acknowledging the reality. There's hardship. There's things that come in your life that you didn't see coming. There's sufferings that go on. I consider the sufferings of this present time, it's not something to ignore. It's a reality. So watch him when he goes to verse 22. Essentially the same thought. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. All of creation's hurting. There's a real pain going on. So when you come to verse 23, he echoes that. And he says, this is a reality even for Christians, even for those who belong to God. And so he says, and we know not only this, even we ourselves, even we Christ followers groan within. So verse 22, he's just confirming what you know to be true. He says, we know. It's common knowledge. You might as well not ignore it. All of creation's in pain. Death is real. Injury is real. Disease is real. And this global suffering has real meaning behind it. He says this is actually like the pain of childbirth. You might remember if you think back to November when we were talking about this. Paul writes as though all of creation is on its tiptoes, straining, looking out on the distant horizon, waiting for something what Scripture calls a regeneration when everything will be made new, a future that Jesus promised. Although there's brokenness and although there's suffering and although there's real groaning going on, the Bible makes the case it's all a witness. It's like the Heavenly Father calling out saying, pay attention. Are you not paying attention to what's going on? I need you to pay attention because there's a time coming when I'm going to hit the eternal reset button and everything will be made new. And you don't want to miss that. Jesus calls that awesome time the regeneration. If you've never heard him say that before, I had people in each of the previous services already approach me and say, I've actually never paid attention to that statement before. Look with me on the screen at the way that Jesus said it. Matthew 19, 28. He's talking to his disciples here. They've gathered around, and he's talking about the future, what's going to happen. And he says to them, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. I encourage you to look up that verse later when you get a chance. The word regeneration in the Greek language is palingenesia. Don't look for it in your notes. You won't find it there. Palingenesia in the Greek language means when everything is made new again. He talks about that in the book of Revelation. Jesus says to everyone in the book of Revelation that are standing before the throne, Behold, I make all things new. The exact same word, palingenesia. Well, this is what he says in Matthew when he's talking to the disciples. There's a future coming, a regeneration when everything will be reset. And here's the great thing about it. Nothing can stop it. 
Because God's got a plan and He's carrying out His plan. That's why Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. It has to happen. If you're new to church this morning, I want you to hear this. Regeneration begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know that, you need to know that. That's where the new start begins. The first stage of it is here on planet Earth. He said, I'll forgive you of all your sins. You can have a brand new beginning and be in relationship with me. You need to know that. So the reality is, yes, he did come to forgive sins and give you a brand new start. He'll erase the chalkboard and give you a brand new beginning. But he also came to make all things new. Now, in connection with the anticipation of the final regeneration, the future one, There's a real strong emphasis in the Bible on a future hope, and that's what Romans 8, 24 is talking about. So go with me to verse 24, and you'll see how Paul structures the sentence. He actually uses the word hope five times in just this very short breath. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? I want to take just the first seven words of that sentence and bear down. I want you to notice... For in hope we have been saved. Are you looking closely at that? Because that's written in past tense. That's remarkable because many times you find salvation written up in the Bible as future. It's something that's out there. It hasn't happened yet. Yet Paul writes it in past tense. Somebody who's, um, Dave, you've got your Bible open. Would you read for us Romans 5, 9? I'm going to ask you to stand up and read it really loud for everyone. Romans 5, 9. And you'll see that it's referred to as something future when he reads this. We shall be saved. Thank you for reading that. Appreciate willing volunteers when you get called out in public like that. We shall be saved. You hear that? He's talking future. We shall be saved. And then in the New Testament, you also find it being referred to in present tense. We are being saved, but Paul has written of it in past tense, for in hope we have been saved. What's he doing? Why is he linking? This is one of the reasons that Paul is considered to be such a brilliant author. We know it's future, we know it's present, but it was also past, meaning it was put into effect, it was put into motion when Christ had a physical death on the cross, his actions in the past. Yet, we recognize there's more yet. It's not just about a historical action. There's more coming. So Paul speaks of having been saved in hope. A hope is future because you don't see it now. It's out there. It's waiting for you. So verse 24 bears down, for in hope we have been saved. At the very moment that you came to the realization of who Jesus really is, when Jesus became real to you, you began looking forward. I bet there's individuals in this auditorium right now that know the day, maybe even the day of the week, the month, the year that they became a Christ follower. Anybody here willing to say, Dave, you know? when March 13th, 1987. Very good. So he knows the actual day. I bet that's true for many of you. You can remember. I remember when I was 14, Jesus became real to me when I was walking down a street in my parents' hometown, starry night, and all of a sudden it it clicked. I could put the pieces together. So in that moment, and in, in Dave's case, 
in the 1980s, he began looking forward. You, at some point in your life, began looking forward. You started understanding there's a final phase coming to this. That's what Paul is talking about. So when we're talking about biblical hope, there's a real sense of expectation here. I want you to see the Greek word for hope on the screen. It's in your notes as well. Maybe you've already looked at it, but just look closely at it because it's talking about something that's different than the hope that you and I know. It's talking about anticipating something with expectation, but yet with a concrete confidence. And this is really important to distinguish because we use the word hope in the English language really flippantly. We hope that a new iPhone 10 will solve all of our problems. We hope that new clothing will make me feel better about myself. Maybe my friends will like me better if I just look like. We hope for solutions. We hope that the Detroit Lions will be better next year than they are this year. That's called false hope. Right? <laughs> It's actually a wish, right? There's a, there's a wishing that goes on with the English language of hoping. Does that phone bother anybody else? Is it mine? I need a new iPhone 10. I have no idea who that is. They just decided to interrupt my message, that's all. Okay, so we have hope. We have wishes we desire that things would be better than they are. God is not talking about that when he says hope. He's talking about something that is so real that you can actually say, I have confidence because this is God's word speaking of it. So God's word speaks of something legitimate that's rock solid and expectation. And I want to show you this morning how the writers of the Bible saw the word hope and the way that it was used, that you should be looking at it the exact same way. Let me take you, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 6 and look at the way that it's structured here. Because you can take this word elpace that we just looked at in the Greek language and put it right in there. Hebrews 6.19. We have this confidence we have this expectation. We have this hope. How? As an anchor. As an anchor for the soul, and it's firm, and it's secure. See, that doesn't sound like a wish, does it, church? That doesn't sound like something I wish it would happen. God's saying, this is solid. Now transfer that over to 1 Thessalonians 5.10. Look at the way that it's stated here, the hope of a salvation it's talking about, this confidence. For God is not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's solid. Take it over to Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 7. Being justified. Watch how it links your justification. Being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the expectation of eternal life. Can I remind you this morning that God can say this emphatically because this justification is by his grace and it is a fact, not a fable. This is a reality because it's based in the past action of what Jesus Christ did. It's based in the present power of the Holy Spirit and it's based in the future expectation of the hope of what's coming for you. Do you need to hear that again? It's in your notes. It's based in the past action of what God did in Jesus Christ. 
It's based in the present reality of the Holy Spirit who indwells you right now, the power of that one that God gave you as a seal. And it's based in the future expectation of the reality of the regeneration that Jesus says it's going to happen. So when we received Jesus Christ, whatever day that was for you, whatever date on the calendar you can look back on, you were justified. So God said, I declared you righteous in that moment. And that's really important because there's a lot of times when you don't feel all that righteous, right? See, this is truth even when you don't feel it. It doesn't matter what you feel because your feelings will betray you. Emotions will mislead you. What matters is what God declares me to be, and God declares that you're forgiven. Now, he can say, I'm forgiven, not because of what I feel, but because of what God declares to be true in his word. He can't lie to you. So if I go chasing after feelings and emotions, I'm constantly confused because I'm up and I'm down and I'm up and I'm down. But God says, no, I always remain the same. There's no shadow of turning in me. What my word declares to be true is true. So you really need to understand this justification link with hope. Let me take you to that second Greek word that's in your notes on justification. You see it on the screen, and it's talking about something that's been declared innocent. I bet there's a pretty good chance that many of us right now in this auditorium are not feeling innocent, even though God says we're innocent. See, justification is this action by which God took our sins and transferred them to Jesus. And I'm talking about your past sins, your present sin, and sin you haven't even committed yet. Past, present, future. That's why it's called the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's done it all. So that justification means God assigns my sin to Jesus, and as a result, I stand acquitted before God, even though I'm guilty. So yeah, I can feel guilty. I cannot feel innocent, but God says you are innocent regardless of what you feel. So let me have Blair just back up one slide. Let's go back to Titus again. Look closely at the way he's stating it. Being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs, your inheritors, according to the the hope, the concrete promise, do you know what that kind of knowledge does for you? It produces a confident expectation of eternal life. That's why you can find the writers of Hebrews saying the things that they do, and the writers of all the other chapters, of all the other books in the New Testament, speak with such confidence. Watch on the screen with me at a Hebrews 11.1. 1. If you've ever wondered, why do they speak so authoritatively when I don't feel all that secure? It says it this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things expected, concrete, el pace, certain Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, biblical hope is not based on wishful thinking. It's based on the integrity of the Lord God, and he will not lie to you. So because our hope is in God, the completion is guaranteed. That's why you find Paul writing the book of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am confident I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he will perfect it. He will perfect it because it's in Jesus. Now, if you feel like you were thirsty and you came to the fountain for a drink and you feel like you've been drinking from a fire hydrant, just hang on. we got one more verse to go. Let's go to verse 25. 
But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So because salvation is completely the work of God, I'm going to ask you to say amen if you agree with that. Because salvation is completely the work of God. It is. It's, it's completely of him. It's nothing I did to earn it. It's completely his gift. So because it's completely the gift of God, that means it's impossible for me to lose what he's given to those who are truly believers. So during the waiting that Paul is talking about, during this time of persevering that you're waiting eagerly for it, there's no fear in the midst of the waiting because it's God who gave it to you and God said you can't lose it. He sealed you in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's no fear in the midst of the waiting. It's not as though we're walking along saying, man, I really, I really hope Mark is right. I don't want to go to hell. I wish this was accurate. God says, no, you got it wrong. This is absolutely solid. It's concrete because it's based in my word. Yet here's the reality that you and I struggle with. It's still unseen. So we have to wait for it patiently. With eagerness, Paul says, though. So if we don't possess something that we really want, then it becomes much more meaningful to us, the hoping takes on a whole new meaning when we're waiting patiently. Think of it this way. Think of a, a young woman who's engaged to be married. She's not yet married. Her fiancé has given her a ring, and she wears it proudly and shows it to everyone, snapshots on Instagram, showing it off to all her friends. Maybe the invitations have even been sent out, but the wedding day has not yet arrived. What's she doing? She's waiting expectantly, eagerly, anticipating something that's guaranteed to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. That's the sense in which Paul is approaching this. So he says, we wait for this eagerly and we do it with perseverance. See, I believe he's doing this really intentionally. He's indicating a positive endurance, not a negative one. This is a sense of expectation, of joy, because there's a burning expectation that God's plan will be fulfilled. So here's what it requires on your part. It requires steadfast faith. Now, there's a form of faith that's built into every single human being. We all have it. We're raised with it from infinite age, from, from the time when we were just little, little babies. We were taught to trust people. So as infants, we learned we could trust our mom, we could trust our dad, we could trust older people around us. And that functional form of faith carried over into the age that you are now. So we buy food at restaurants and grocery stores, believing that it will not harm us. But we use common sense, so we don't buy sushi at gas stations, right? <laughs> we buy bottled water, believing that nobody laced it with poison at the bottling plant. We trade paper with each other, believing that the government is going to back it up that that money that we exchange has the good faith of the government behind it. So we're not trading roosters and chickens anymore. No longer do we exchange eggs. We believe that doctors have studied medicine well in medical school, and so we trust them because many of us have not studied medicine. So we have a functional form of faith. 
Society can't function without it, without a basic level of faith. But the kind of faith he's talking about here, this faith in God, we have a faith in God to do what he says he will do. That kind of faith, that's a whole new level. And that faith is not something you can get on your own. You can't gin that up. That actually proceeds from God himself. Did you know that God gave you the faith that you have in him? That's a gift from God. Let me show you on the screen, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. See, grace is a gift of God, but faith is a gift of God. God gave you the ability to have confidence in him. That is him taking you to a whole new level that you can't get to on your own. It is the gift of God. So that's why you can find the writers in Hebrews saying the things that they are, and you can find Paul saying what he's doing in Romans 8. Let me take you back to Hebrews for just a minute. We were just in Hebrews 11. Let me take you back, but let's go old school. Let's go to the King James Version. Not that the new translations are bad, but I want you to see a word that's really important to me, and I hope it will be to you. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Assurance is found in the newer translations. That's not a bad word. It's a good word. But substance has a really rock-solid meaning to me because right away what you're seeing is biblical faith is not blind optimism. And it's not manufacturing a feeling. You're not ginning up some degree of emotion. The word that's actually used there for substance is hypostasis in the Greek language. The last word in your notes this morning. And it's talking about a substructure, something that's setting underneath you look around this auditorium and you see these very large wooden timber beams. That's the superstructure. It's holding up the roof. It, it pushes out against the walls, but it needs a strong substructure underneath it. So what you can't see below this is the concrete piers that go deep into the ground. The substructure that's holding up the superstructure. To a Christian, Faith is what a concrete foundation is to the superstructure of a skyscraper. It's the assurance, the guarantee that it's going to stand because it's rock solid, it's deep, it's embedded in something that can be depended upon. So if faith is a gift, by default, it's God's way of giving me assurance that he's going to do what he said he will do, what he promised will happen. The best definition I've ever seen for faith is the one that's in your notes this morning, and it's going to go on the screen for you. And you really need to drink it in. I think it's 100% accurate. True biblical faith is a confident submission to God's word in spite of the circumstances. That's what biblical faith is, believing that God's going to do what he said he was going to do. Not that I can gin up enough emotion, but rather that I can believe that God is dependable. I trust him to do what he says he's going to do. Hear that again. Really drink that in. True biblical faith, confident submission to God's word in spite of the circumstances. And I would add to that, no matter the circumstances, because that's where you and I struggle. We see the circumstances around us, don't we? That's what's visible to us. We see the broken down bodies. We see the broken down cars. We see the broken down bank accounts. We see the broken down relationships. And it quakes us. 
But yet we have a God who's saying, your task is to submit to my word, knowing I'm accomplishing what is best for you. So in Romans 8, 28, he says things like, I'm at work here. I'm doing things. So the authors of the Bible say things. We know that God is working all things together for good. And here's where humans make a huge mistake. And I've heard this misinterpreted so many times. When you come to this verse, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. They put a slash right there and they say, God causes all things to work together for my good. God causes all things to work together for our good. And they're misinterpreting what Scripture is saying. God says, I'm, I'm working a plan here. There's a bigger picture going on than what you can see. Because it doesn't always feel like it's for my good in the moment, does it? I got a call from my daughter Mackenzie on Thursday. Mackenzie and Ashley are two daughters who are in their 20s, share an apartment together in Grand Rapids. And Mackenzie's car had broken down. She's on Cherry Street in East Grand Rapids. Really narrow street, very busy, heavily traveled area. And she said, Dad, I have a flat tire. Now, mind you, right, you remember Thursday, it's three above zero. And um, I said, well, Ken's, I'm obviously, I'm in Lansing, I can't do anything for you. She said, well, I've got a friend here helping me, and we're going to try and get the tire off and, and get a new one on, but I can't get things to go right. And she's crying, and she's very upset. Nine o'clock comes, and they still don't have it done. Now, this started at three in the afternoon. And most of you know you can change tires pretty quick, right? So something's going on here. And she said, Dad, I, I called wrecker services. None of the wrecker companies will show up. They tell me there's too many accidents in Grand Rapids right now, and the roads are too slippery, and there's just too much going on, and they can't come and respond. And I said, well, okay, you're probably going to get a ticket, but let's go at it the next morning. So the next morning, I call, and I said, what happened? And she said, well, I called the wrecker companies, and they still won't come, Dad. Uh, it's a 2005 Blazer, and she told one of the record companies that the tires probably never come off. Maybe the spare tire is still the original one. We don't know for sure. But the one record company said, I'm not even going to show up because I bet I can't even get that tire off there. I said, okay, I'll be there in an hour. Throw the tools in the back of the car, drive to Grand Rapids, and I'm thinking this verse in my mind, right? God causes all things to work together, not for my good. God causes all things to work together for good. And I'm trying to see the good in it, so I pull up to Mackenzie's apartment. She jumps in my car, and she said, Dad, I'm so sorry you had to come all the way over here. Internally, I'm thinking, you're not as sorry as I am. <laughs> it's four above zero, right? And I'm going to do the dad thing. So I crawl underneath against the snowbank, laying in literally the gutter, trying to pry the nuts off from this old tire. And some girl walks by and says to Mackenzie, even though she can't see me, she sees me laying in the ditch, and she said, whoa, you owe him big time. I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> so the tire comes off, and I crawl around to the backside of the car, and we've got the car up jacked, and I try and get underneath, and sure enough, that stinking spare is flat. Yeah, I feel my pain. You playing your violin for me, right? <laughs> okay, so we take the tire to a tire shop. And I said, I, could I just buy a used tire from you? I need to get my daughter back on the road. And he said, we don't sell used tires here. Of course you don't. <laughs> so, this has suddenly turned into a $200 adventure, right? Um, you know what it did, though, folks? In the midst of it, Mackenzie and I 
have three, four hours together, dad-daughter time, and I'm, I'm looking for the silver lining in the midst of the cloud, and Romans 8's going through my mind. And Mackenzie's weeping. We're sitting at Qdoba for lunch, and she said, Dad, I've had one bad thing after another this week. It's just things are not going well. It's not working out. I said, Ken, do you remember Romans 8, 29? And my daughters always roll their eyes when I begin quoting Scripture to them. God causes all things to work together for good. She said, yeah, but it doesn't feel good right now. And I said, well, well, stop. It doesn't say God causes all things to work together for my good. God causes all things to work together for good. So there's a bigger picture going on here, and I can't see it. And you can't see it. All I know for sure is we get to spend three to four hours together in things that we wouldn't normally get to do. There's something going on underneath here. God's working a bigger plan. Do you believe God or not? Do you take him at his word? Is he rock solid when things go wrong? Can you depend upon him that he's working a bigger picture here? See, true biblical faith is a confident submission to God's word in spite of the circumstances. So our task is to submit to God's word knowing that he's accomplishing what is best even when it doesn't feel like it. So the reality is your faith is as only as good as the focus of its object. I know you're going to need to hear that again. You're not going to find it in your notes. Just hear it closely. Faith is only as good as the focus of its object. If your faith is in walking on ice across a frozen lake, and that ice is only an inch thick, your faith is in the wrong object because you're probably going to fall through. If it's 12 inches thick, it's a pretty solid object to have your confidence in. Faith is only as good as the subject, the thing that you have the confidence in, the focus of its object. So if your focus is on money, your faith is only as good as that money holds out. If your faith is in your body not breaking down, it's only going to last as long as your body holds together. But if your faith is in something that is rock solid, strong, the living God, the object of your faith is the living God, our object is God, and he cannot lie to you. He says, I'm solid, and he's working all things together for good, even when circumstances make you feel otherwise. Now, this is where you're supposed to be different. If you lifted the cup this morning and you lifted the bread and you said, yeah, this is real to me. I know who Jesus is. I know that he came. I know that he died. I know that he rose again and that he's coming back one day. If you witness to each other, this is where you're supposed to be different. Because the natural man, Scripture says, trust in the things that can be seen. Put their confidence in the things that they can look at. God says, put your confidence in the things you cannot see. The one who believes without seeing is specially blessed. Just think of the conversation Jesus had with Thomas. Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. See, Thomas didn't believe that Jesus was actually resurrected until he laid eyes on him. Watch how Jesus carries out this conversation. John 20, verse 29, then Jesus told him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet believed. That's you. January 2018, and you're sitting in an auditorium where you could be doing anything else, but you're sitting here because you're dedicated and desiring and wanting to know more about this Jesus who redeemed you. Blessed are you who have believed without seeing. So I'm simply asking the question this morning, what's your hope in? Paul says in verse 24, for in hope you have been saved. If you're a believer, you know your hope is not in a new year. Your hope is in the one who makes all things new. So if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, maybe you're not convinced, hear me on this. Jesus and Jesus alone can hit the reset button on your life. And he will make everything new. He will erase everything of your past. Take your sin away and give you a brand new beginning. So you don't need the first week of January for a new beginning. You don't need the first week of January to start over again. Every day in Jesus is a new beginning. Scripture says his mercies are new every morning. Isn't that good? God's good. Let me pray with you that way. Father, we declared in truth that you are a good, good Father. And you've reminded us again through your word this morning. Thank you for encouraging us at the beginning of this year. We take on lots of opportunity, and we don't know what you're going to bring our way. Some of us will encounter difficulties we had no idea was coming. And some of us will experience blessings we had no idea was coming. Whatever the circumstances, Father, allow us to be reminded of the truth Not only are you good, but you can be depended upon in every trial. We praise you in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.